0: old-timey crimey. I'm Christy. And I'm Amber. And we have for you this week some interesting tidbits that we have found in the old-timey newspapers. Ooh, newspaper time, guys. Yes, I am going to start strong. Okay. Okay. Authorities at Council Bluffs, Iowa, were on the lookout for a strange show troupe said to consist of Frank Gilmore, a traveling musician, and his two daughters, with the dead body of his wife as the principal attraction. So, come one, come all. Look at my wife's dead body.
1: Hey, you know what, though? There was like a thing in Disney that some a worker had died and his dead body was on display for a while because they thought it was part of the exhibit.
0: Oh my goodness. According to the report to police, the wife's dying request was that her body be not buried or destroyed, and Gilmore, honoring this wish, has been carrying it about with him, exhibiting the body as that of a mummified woman, and adding to the show, for which he charges admission, a musical program. It's an interesting musical. Little, little song and dance with my mummified wife. Gilmore is reported to have been arrested at Corning, Arkansas, where authorities ordered the body buried, but, according to information to the Springfield police, he managed to evade the order. Whenever possible, the police were informed undertaker's establishments are used for exhibiting the body. Not you know <laughs> vaudeville shows,
1: but we're yeah, sure, yeah. All right, so I'm going to tell you about a donkey. Okay, and I actually got this one because I can't read. Because I thought the headline was town burns because frigid donkey balls. Oh, but it's frigid donkey bulks. Okay, all right. My way was better, but whatever. <laughs> So this was in Kars, Turkey. This bleak town of northern Asia Minor has sent a petition to Mustafa Kemal for help in becoming modern. The petition was prompted by the near destruction of the town by fire some months ago. With the temperature away below zero, the sole piece of apparatus of the Kars Fire Brigade Embodied in the person of one small gray donkey carrying water buckets on his back, walked. The shivering beast could not be induced to carry water to quench the flames, and cars all but burned to the ground. The townspeople have begged the Ghazi to help them replace the donkey with an up-to-date motor fire engine. <laughs> that was in
0: 1929. Wow. Jeez.
1: Yeah, so the donkey was too cold to put the fire out, and the town burnt to the ground. Well, donkey balls. Donkey balls. Bridget donkey balls. (laughs) I'm
0: going to tell you about uh, Pauline Lord and her fight to protect her honor. Ooh. Proving that she intends to fight the accusation of Mrs. Ruth Harris that she stole the love of her husband, Mitchell Harris, actor... Pauline Lord, star of Anna Christie, yesterday filed papers in the Supreme Court denying the charges against her and demanding a trial by jury of the divorce suit brought by Mrs. Harris in which she is named co-respondent. No alternative will be accepted, Miss Lord asserts, other than the dismissal of the case because of the lack of evidence. She dares her accusers, the actress said, to bring all the facts into court and permit 12 men to judge of her guilt or innocence. And then the next part is headlined, denies she's a vamp. I am not a vamp, and just as sure as right triumphs, I will emerge from the affair guiltless, while those who have attempted to besmirch me will be the losers, the star of ours. Mr. Harris and my brother-in-law, who lives with us, are chums. He often calls at our apartment and spent the evening there. That is all. For Mrs. Harris to try to blame her unhappiness on me is ridiculous. But then in the next paragraph, we learn that it's not actually so ridiculous because she has been sued as a love pirate before. Oh, I love it. A love pirate. According to Miss Lord, she could have settled for $5,000, the suit against her for $50,000 damages, for alleged alienation of the affections of Harris. Another married woman, Mrs. Nellie Roche, wife of Billy Roche, fight referee, charged Miss Lord with being a love pirate. She obtained a judgment against the actress who was ordered to pay her $50 a week out of her salary of $500 a week until a total of $5,000 was paid. Today, that total of $5,000 would be $86,000. Ooh.
1: All right, well, I I have two short ones kind of related to that. Okay. So we'll start with White Plains, New York, February 22nd of 1936. There was a man, Charles Witzel, who was talking in his sleep. And he said, yes, you are my sweetheart. I keep your picture over my heart. Mrs. Wetzel looked in the articles of clothing that covered his heart and found the picture of his stenographer. A judge ordered Wetzel to begin paying $50 a week in alimony. Thank you for that. Don't talk in your sleep, fellas, especially if you're cheating on your wife. Hair pulling fight is taken to court. Doctor's wife charges opponent tried to break up my home. Chicago, a sidewalk hair-pulling contest involving five women, which was watched by a hundred spectators, was slated for settlement in police court today. Principal combatants were Mrs. Sophia B. Jonas, 34, wife of a physician, and the comely Mrs. Margaret Gillette, 30. Mrs. Jonas, police said, Accused Mrs. Gillette of trying to break up my home. Mrs. Gillette said there must be
0: a mistake in identity. (laughs) Of course, it was that woman over there. Um, Well, on that same note, uh, I'm going to go ahead with this one. This is a lengthy one, but it's worth it because. That's what she said. (laughs) Well, that's what a lot of she said because (laughs) we have in this story, this story has everything it has negligees, it has a harem. It has offensive cultural appropriation in the pursuit of a snake oil healing scam. So, let's get into it. All right. Turned home into harem, says wife of divine healer. Woman patients ascribe young wife's charges to her jealousy. Dr. Adolf Engelhart, pastor of the Church of Divine Science today, denied the charges brought by his young wife. Mrs. Minnie Caldwell Englehart, now 19, but who married the pastor when she was 16, named in her bill 122 women. Englehart declares, his wife simply secured a list of his feminine patients, the oldest of them 82 and a great-grandmother, and the youngest only 5 years old. She was jealous of his women patients and insisted on being permitted to watch his healing operations. What then must be the seething emotions in the heart of a woman who has convinced herself that her husband has been more than ordinarily friendly with 122 women? And what must be her state of mind when she feels impelled to name among the rivals she accuses of winning away her husband's affections a correspondent of 82 years, another of 75, two of 65, and many others who are grandmothers in years and in fact, and one is a child of five? What? The mere man in this strange case is the Reverend Dr. Adolf Engelhart, pastor of the Church of Divine Science at Providence, Rhode Island. The suit was filed by Mrs. Minnie Engelhart, his 22-year-old bride. There is a situation that challenges the credulity. And if this startling circumstance were not on the court records here, the writing of this story might easily be for eyes that would read but not believe. You wouldn't believe it, I guess. Several of Englehart's women patients rallied to his defense today and testified that all the trouble was caused by the pretty young wife's jealousy. She, in her turn, declares her husband's hands were placed on his patients more often in affection than for the purposes of healing. She claims he possesses a strong hypnotic power, which he employed in holding his parishioners. He tried to turn our home into a harem and used religion to cloak his own disreputable ends, said young Mrs. Englehart. Engelhart met his wife when she came to him as a patient just after the end of the war, when he was released from an internment camp where he was committed as an enemy alien. He now accuses her of ungratefulness since he restored her to health. Leon S. Caldwell, the pastor's father-in-law, who was one of the pastor's patients, declares the treatment was not of a spiritual nature. But if you talk to Mrs. Caldwell Englehart, she will convince you that she at least believes her husband has lured to himself the affections of 122 women. He turned my home into a harem. He clothed them in kimonos of lavender and blue and orange, every color of the rainbow. He talked of the soul and was thinking of the heart. I think he was thinking of a different organ. <laughs> in her bill of complaint, the list of correspondents runs the range of age from Mrs. H.J. Brayton, who is 82, to girls of the flapper type. The list filed with a divorce bill in the suit names nearly every woman in the pastor's flock. As soon as the list was made public, many of the women gathered for an indignation meeting, which I think we need to have more indignation meetings. Indignation meeting, all right. At which the pastor's wife was denounced. The women made unanimous denial of the charges in the bill and threatened immediate reprisals. One damaged suit, alleging defamation of character, already has been filed against Mrs. Engelhart. She is literally besieged in her home, guarded by three large and ferocious dogs. In recounting her sensational matrimonial venture, Mrs. Engelhart said that she met her husband five years ago. She was 16 and a high school student. He was then known as Dr. Adolf von Henry. Oh, my. The name under which he was interned. He advertised extensively his healing powers. One of the advertisements came to the eyes of this girl's parents. They felt the need of his attention and became his patients. One day, they took Minnie along. Thereafter, she was a frequent patient. Indeed, she says she fell easily to the hypnotic influence with which she avers he has lured the affections of the women she named in her complaint. He set himself up as the pastor of the Church of Divine Science. It became known as an institution of spiritualistic leaning. But this is how Mrs. Engelhart describes his spiritualistic leanings. I got tired of seeing women flock to him night and day. Why, when he was sent away during the war to be interned as an enemy alien, all his women patients came to the train to kiss him goodbye. It was a scandalous scene. There they were, blondes, brunettes, peroxides, henna-dyed women, old ones and flappers, all shapes and sizes, falling all over themselves in a ludicrous scramble for his kisses. It didn't take me long to notice when he returned that the cures were not so effective when I was around. Divine healing. Bah! He kept a closet of kimonos of every color. They were for his women patients. They would put to shame any lingerie store. For different types, he had different colors. That's how he studied women. And he was so brazen. Take the case of the girl he courted a year after marrying me. Right here in Providence, too. He gave her an engagement ring, and she returned it when she discovered he was already married. This guy's a scumbag. When the divine healer has his day in court, he proposes to build his case along the lines of this interview. My wife's charges are ridiculous. These women have simply been patients, nothing more. My wife got a list of my patients and now has named them all as correspondents, regardless of consequences. It's mad jealousy on her part. Nothing else. She accuses me of immorality. The idea, is there anything immoral in healing the ailing? If you're fucking them, yes. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. My wife couldn't bear to see me with women patients. She often closed the door in their faces when they called to see me. She almost shattered the telephone with the force with which she hung up when they called for appointments. Whenever I made a cure, she would fly into a rage. The doctor charges, incidentally, that when she left him, she took all of his lavender paraphernalia, including a pair of lavender pajamas. The woman, or rather, those who have consented to talk of their experience in the doctor's temple, deny he ever gave private seances and have explained the laying on of his hands as being part of the unique practices of the church which he founded. This very interesting ceremony, they say, is nothing more nor less than spiritual osteopathy. It has nothing to do with the fact that his hands are on your breasts. And you're wearing a negligee. More intimate details of the doctor's practicing were made public, however, by the Right Reverend Belle Gulliver Miller, ex-chorus girl, divine, and co-founder of the Church of Divine Science. It was the Reverend Miss Miller who turned Reverend Dr. Engelhart over to federal authorities during the war as an el- enemy alien. He was interned for a time. She also introduced him to the woman he later married and who is now suing for divorce. It has been intimated that the marriage broke up the partnership and turned the Reverend Dr. Miller into an enemy. I knew long before Dr. Engelhart's marriage that he would be sued for divorce on December nineteenth, 1922, she asserted. I foretold it through a horoscope when his pretty wife was first donning her lavender silk negligee for a spirit treatment. <laughs> So he had, um, in many hues, these negligees, and they hung in his closet, and the patients would choose the one that they felt uh, suited their soul's essence, of course. Garbed in this, she then presented herself in the boudoir study. So not only is the laying on of hands happening in negligees, it's happening in a boudoir. Mm. Yes, this, this is a, a sexy, sexy cult. Oh, just, just wait until you hear about the, the spirits that assisted the doctor in these treatments. Oh, good. There are three. The first, this is still the Reverend Miss Miller. The first to possess him was the Black Bear. This was the spirit who collected the money. It informed the patient that the doctor was suffering and was burning with the fervor of healing. Usually, the patient immediately contributed a large sum to assuage the spirit burnings of the doctor. So it becomes all about him. Oh, I'm in such pain trying to heal you. You have to give me more money. This doesn't even make sense. This is the dumbest cult. Sometimes patients became so wrought up over the doctor's condition that he had to call in a second spirit to quiet them. This was Blackhawk, the consoler, the boudoir spirit. Oh my god. The boudoir spirit is the name of my yacht. It was the Blackhawk's duty to apply soul bomb to the excited victim. And then, as a last resort, came the Oriental. The doctor always wanted to figure out a better name for this spirit, but he never got around to it. The Oriental was a very special spirit, only called for emergencies when the others had failed. But it was very efficient, and the patient always emerged cured whenever he was on the job. And of course, if you're having, you know, sexy healing times, you need some music. So the doctor would break out his phonograph for accompanying music. This music was not necessary to accomplish the trance, but was used to quiet the patient after the spirits had taken effect. So Minnie Engelhart's sole color was lavender, and so she picked out her uh, her lavender negligee. And the Reverend Miss Miller said, "When I saw how hypnotized she was, I begged the doctor to marry her. I will haunt you for the rest of your life for that evil suggestion." He answered, "But I kept telling him he should do this in justice to Minnie, and he finally consented." It's a very strange setup. I don't understand like why she's insisting that he should m- marry Minnie. <laughs> It doesn't make sense. And then she's like, but I foresaw in a horoscope that she was going to divorce him on this day. Like, what? You could prevent that from happening by just not having him marry the teenage girl. Yeah, that would be good. That would be a good start, yeah. The Reverend Miss Miller said she informed federal authorities of his relations with the girl and of his pro-German leanings. I wouldn't have given him away, she explained, but I did believe he was an undesirable citizen. We founded this religion ourselves. I ordained him, and then he ordained me. We were co-priests of spiritual healing. There were only eight of us when we started, but gradually it grew to vast proportions. I was his secretary for some time and wardrobe mistress of the occult-colored negligees. Oh, my God. Hashtag brand new sentence, except actually very old sentence, 100 years old. <laughs> this is um, This is special. It's very special, yes. Uh, she continued... I don't believe all this about 122 women. When it came to little children and old women, I am quite sure the doctor's tastes never ran in that direction. The next section is titled Juvenile Love. Uh One federal agent told of visits paid by women to the doctor during the time he was in custody. They came in flocks and droves, he said. We had a hard time keeping them back. Finally, a little girl came in with short skirts and hair down her back. I thought she was his daughter and permitted her to see him. She threw her arms around him and started to kiss him. I thought she was going a bit too far, but she informed me that she was going to marry him. She told me what wonderful power he had and how she could not help loving him. Okay. He has also been arrested and fined for practicing medicine without a license, which is exactly what he's doing. Mrs. Engelhart tells of a healing session that her husband did soon after they got married. Shortly after our marriage, a very beautiful girl, about 20, came to our home and Engelhart's office for treatment. She said she had a bad hip. Engelhart took her into his office and bade her disrobe and laid on his hands in the theory that the divine power would flow down his fingers to the girl's body. She was granted $14 a week alimony by the court pending trial of her strange suit. And then uh, it does say a couple weeks later that she was granted an uncontested decree and $10 a week alimony. So for him to not fight her, she had to agree to $10 a week. Pretty much, yeah. So that's uh, $8,800 a year today, BTW. Oh, that's, so, that's not bad. Not so, bad. Yeah. Negligees and. <laughs> Lots of grossness. Laying on of hands. Lots of fun there. Okay. That's
1: special. <laughs>
0: that was special. That was very special. Quite the cult. So I'm, I'm this is a
1: twofer because yeah. it's side by side and so beautiful. So very beautiful and how this was done would provide ice for suffering poor. With no appropriations nor available funds, the City Health Department is experiencing much difficulty in supplying the need for ice felt by the worthy poor and needy of the city. The nurses of the Health Department have tried in every way to meet the demands made upon them, and they have appealed to the newspapers to put the matter before the people of the city. Dr. W.E. Hibbit, City Health Officer, will be glad to receive any amount, no matter how small, contributed to the fund for the relief of the worthy poor who are suffering from the effects of the hot weather. Immediately next to this, hailstones, eight inches around. Saturday afternoon, a very heavy hailstorm passed over Shelbyville, doing considerable damage, breaking a number of the large window panes at the courthouse, and doing great damage to the roofs of buildings covered with composition rooting. Hailstones by the score fell on on the public square as large as hen's eggs and in many instances as large as eight inches in circumference. The storm approached from the northeast and its duration was about 15 minutes. Its width was only about a quarter of a mile.
0: (laughs) Eight inch hailstones. That seems like an exaggeration.
1: And immediately next to, we're looking for ice for the poor. Yeah.
0: <laughs> I got some ice for you right here. Just fell from the sky, manna from heaven. <laughs>
1: 1913. This was in June of 1913 in Tennessee. Hmm. But I love, I have to say, I really love the worthy poor. Yeah. I love that. I like that. Yeah. So, hey, we need ice. It's really hot. Our Our poor people really need ice. And then hailstones eight inches around, and they really should have not put them directly next to each other. <laughs> they are right in next a line. to each other, aren't they?
0: <laughs> All right. Saint Louis Revelers drive dry raiders from hotel. Three were injured in a battle between New Year's Revelers and Prohibition agents in the fashionable Chase Hotel early today. Guests in the main dining room objected to the intrusion of Federal agents and a squad of police in plain clothes. The raiders were driven out by a barrage of chairs, glassware, china, and cutlery. Ooh. So they came to try to take away the alcohol, and the people drinking the alcohol said, Nope. Have a chair in your face. John Pastera and George H. Bode Jr. were shot during the rioting. Mrs. W. H. Robinson was injured. I don't know which one to do
1: next. (laughs) How about Carload of Potatoes Stolen in Columbus? 1952 Columbus, Ohio, potatoes are getting so scarce in Columbus they're being stolen by the carload. Herb Catliff, president of William Catliff and Sons Produce House, told police thieves broke into the place during the night and stole 8,900 pounds of potatoes. Jesus Christ. Estimated the loss at about $880.
0: Oh my God.
1: almost nine thousand pounds
0: of potatoes. Somebody really really was craving french fries. I guess (laughs) or were they really really Irish. We've got a, a bit of a dangerous situation here in Bisbee, Arizona. Double barreled, toted both explosive and hooch. An individual who said his name was Nelson is occupying a room in the city jail for five days for drunkenness and for endangering the safety of the city. While very much under the influence of bootleg, he was arrested and there was found in his pocket a full-size stick of giant powder with fuse and cap attached. Just run around with explosives in your pocket and drunk. I'm going to tell you about how two brides married the wrong people. Oh boy.
1: Two brides get wrong husband. Mix-up follows Cooley free-for-all in China. Couples seeking relief in court. Canton, China, two Chinese brides found themselves married to the wrong men here as the result of a free-for-all coolie fight, which only goes to show that anything can happen in China and often does. It seems the two girls, a Miss Wang and a Miss Hei, I don't know if that's how you say it, <laughs> but I enjoy it muchly, uh, resplendishly a attired in their wedding finery, left their homes for the respective nuptial places, traveling by the sedan chair. Traveling in opposite directions, both wedding parties had to pass along a narrow bridge. They met in the middle, each being unable to pass the other and refusing to give way. After much profanity, gesticulations, and threats, the coolies of both parties decided to have it out and being gentlemen, asked the brides to retire to a safe distance. They staged a battle royale for some time, and then suddenly remembered it was time to get on to the weddings. Hastily bundling their charges into the sedan chairs, they were off, but as luck would have it, each bride had gotten into the wrong chair. Since the marriages were arranged by brokers, each bride was unknown to her future husband and in-laws, and the mistake went undiscovered for three days. Oh my God. When custom demands that a bride introduce her husband to his new parents in law. Both couples are now trying to untangle the mess in court. Wow. So they meet on a bridge. Neither one will move. So they fight, grab the wrong bride, and go to the wrong weddings. And that's how I met your mother. That's outstanding. <laughs>
0: that's excellent. I have a very interesting advertisement for you. Oh, good. We were just talking yesterday, actually, about how nobody likes their nose. Yes. I think this is... um, I
1: have a nose story,
0: too, because of that. (laughs) Funny. So this is uh, an advertisement for the Anita Nose Adjuster. Okay. A perfect nose for you. An ill-shaped nose is like a wild, growing, or broken-down branch of a tree. It must be supported to give it strength. And perfect shapeliness. The Anita Nose Adjuster answers that purpose. It is scientifically constructed, easily applied, and worn in complete comfort. It is highly endorsed by leading physicians. Satisfaction guaranteed or money refunded. Send today for a free booklet called Happy Days Ahead. Fill out order form, return it to us, and you may pay for the adjuster when it reaches you. They also have special sizes for children. Would you like to see this wonderful device? Yes. Oh, that is special. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, it's like a rubber band that goes under your ears and then zips up over your nose and then back down under your ear and then another one going from above your ears down to like under your nostrils and then back above. So it's sort of like forms like a...
1: So her description is so much nicer than mine. Mine was, uh, do you remember when Jim Carrey wraps tape around his face in Liar Liar? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it, what it, it does looks kind of like to me. It does like that, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll give you my nose story. Okay. New nose from her fingers. This was impressive to me. 1913. Washington woman suffering from cancer undergoes operation. Miss Nellie Radigan, 25 years old, has a new nose made of two of her fingers. The operation of grafting the fingers has just been completed at the Washington Asylum Hospital. Miss Radigan has been suffering from a cancerous disease which ate away part of her nose. The physicians amputated two of Miss Radigan's fingers, removed the bones and nails, and after cutting away the cancerous tissue of the nose, grafted the fingers in its place. The two fingers were pressed down tight on the cavity, and overall a plaster cast was spread. This is fastened to her bosom so that the hand will be held in position until the flesh of these two fingers has been completely engrafted. This process will consume weeks, for the flesh of the two fingers must join to make the ridge of the nose and the under part must join to the face. The operating surgeons are confident that the operation will be a success. The procedure is said to be a new one in surgical history, although strips of a man's back have been used in making a new hand in a similar fashion. Hmm.
0: I really want to see pictures. I don't know how that could work.
1: I don't either. And there were no pictures. But I thought that was pretty interesting,
0: especially for 1913. Yeah, that is fascinating. I wonder how it turned out. We've got some uh, alliteration in this headline here. Battling Leach, librarian, knocks lawyer for loop. Oh, okay. Gray-haired women cheered like veteran fans yesterday when a vicious fight occurred in City Hall between John H. Leach, Queensboro Library trustee, and James B. Emmerich, Queens lawyer. The victor was Battling Leach, who... Although weighing only 140, ended the rumpus with a wicked right hook planted on the jaw of Kid Emmerich, ringside weight 200. The battle occurred a few minutes after Emmerich had been threatened with ejection by Mayor Highland at a meeting of the Committee of the Whole of the Board of Estimate, hearing arguments on a proposed library site at Woodbine and Woodwards Avenue. Emmerich accused the city of delaying in approving the site. After the hearing, the men argued outside the committee room and, followed by a throng of women, adjourned to the empty Aldermanic Chambers. Here, Leach said, Emmerich called him a liar, accusing him of misrepresenting conditions when he spoke before the board against the library site. The fight followed, some of the women yelling, knock him for a goal, or words to that effect. (laughs) We didn't settle the library question, one of the women said, but gee, it was a great fight.
1: There you go, there you go. Paint cans held prisoner. Decorating supplies vanish from police stations, so Captain orders them behind bars with guard. Hmm. To put a stop to thefts of paint from the South Chicago Police Station, Captain Morgan Collins last night ordered what was left of the supply be put in a cell and locked up.
0: Locked up the paint. He did, there with the know. guard. I mean, I guess if you can't find the people stealing it and lock them up, you may as well lock up the paint.
1: I suppose.
0: This is uh, both a funny story, but then... It's that placement thing that we've run into. So I've got two. Well, one is much shorter. Okay, so this is uh, Chicago. Men who fall asleep in barber's chairs and awake to find themselves all shampooed and massaged and in debt six or seven dollars were revenged when Anton Klivek took a nap at the Dole Barber College. Klivek is a sophomore student at the college and a member of the best barber college fraternities. A month or so ago, he began to grow a Van Dyke beard. He tried the experiment of promoting the growth of his beard by applying kerosene, but neglected to wash it off carefully. Then he made the mistake of falling asleep in the chair with a lighted cigarette in his mouth. Oh, no. The resulting explosion brought firemen just in time to save the hollowed walls of the barber college. Clivick's shirt was smoldering, his lungs were filled with smoke, His cherished beard was gone, and he was unable to attend any recitations until he had been revived by a pole motor. I meant to look that up. I just imagined some sort of, like, old-timey medical device. Yeah, it seems... sounds like... I didn't order a singe, he protested, as soon as he regained consciousness. Right after that. Kills family, then self. Muncie, Indiana. Apparently suffering an attack of temporary insanity, William Miller, 30, today shot and killed his wife and three children, and then committed suicide. So for that, you get one paragraph, but for a guy whose beard blew up, you get like The whole story. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Icicle captive seven hours. He must now thaw. Newark, New Jersey, January 7th of 1943. Six-year-old Anthony Gulo trapped seven hours by a 300-pound icicle he had pulled off the side of a building was rescued uninjured tonight. On his way to school this afternoon, he tugged at the icicle hanging from a canning plant. The icicle broke off, trapping him beneath it. A physician said after he thaws out, he'll be all right. 300-pound icicle. Do you know how lucky that kid is? He didn't just get crushed to death?
0: Yeah, really. My goodness. All right. This is about the actor Eddie Foy. And I have a kind of a... Side story to tell on this, too, because I looked up some details on his life. Eddie Foy, tears and smiles, takes his fourth bride. Eddie Foy, 65, star comedian, famous for happy marriages and many children, smiled and cried a little last night when he was married, his fourth matrimonial venture in Holy Cross Church. By Father Francis Duffy to Mrs. Marie Coombs, 29, a pretty brunette divorcee, whose grandmother was an Indian maiden. I don't don't understand, but I'm married because I don't intend to be alone in my old age, he said. My children are growing up and away from me. I love children, and I am going to raise another family. I want a home with a little one in it. Did you catch his age? He's 65. She's 29. I mean, age differences can work, but dude, uh, spoilers, he's going to die in five years. (laughs) Literally, that's when he dies is five years from this marriage. The wedding was sandwiched between the matinee and night performances at the Alhambra Theater where Foy and his six little Foy's will end their vaudeville tour Saturday. So, in looking at his Wikipedia article, I found that in 1903, he was on tour with Mr. Bluebeard and there was a fire at the Iroquois Theater in Chicago. A malfunctioning spotlight set fire to the scenery backstage, and Foy stayed on stage until the last minute, trying to keep the audience from panicking. Survivors later praised Foy for his bravery in trying to keep the crowd calm, even as burning debris fell onto the stage all around him. The theater's safety features were inadequate, the theater personnel untrained, and some of the exits locked from the outside, and at least 600 people died. Foy escaped by crawling through a sewer. Wow! Yeah.
1: Candy for killer.
0: That's just a great headline. <laughs> That's
1: a fantastic headline. I love it. It's a really short and sweet article. So this is Medina, Ohio, August thirtieth of nineteen thirteen. A half dollars worth of candy a day is the sole diet of William Evans, confessed slayer of Dolly Kozlowski, Barberton girl. He refuses
0: jail food daily. <laughs> he only eats candy. <laughs> This is a feature that was in a newspaper, The Inquiring Photographer. Every day he asks a question and pictures those questioned. Most of them were pretty like just blah, but this one there, there were a couple interesting answers to the question of when you get married, what sort of life partner will you choose and why? So his, the first answer here is from Philip Mitchell of Salisbury, Maryland, a college student. A woman who likes the same things I like. When I feel like dancing or staying at home, she should want to do the same thing. And she must also know something about making a home seem like home and not an apartment for her husband. What a lucky girl that that winner's going to get. Yeah. Then we have Charles Gillingham from Uniontown, PA, an athlete. He wants a nice girl. There is only one left, and I hope to find her someday. When I do, we will get married, because she will see at once that I have been looking for a long time for her. And she will be sensible enough to recognize her opportunity. So, um, like these two could have been incels if they'd been born in the right century. Yeah, they're, um, okay. All right. So,
1: um, falls on a knife that pierces brain. Lawrenceburg, Kentucky, May 29th, 1913. Chester Lacefield, a young farmer aged 25 years, is dead as the result of a peculiar occurrence. He had been drinking, it is alleged, and had gone to the home of his father-in-law, Jas Carrier, in the Lanes Mill neighborhood where his wife was staying. He became abusive towards his wife and her 18-year-old brother and finally attacked the latter with a knife. Young Carrier picked up a rock and struck Lacefield in the side, knocking him down. As he fell, the knife, which he held in his hand, pierced his nose, and entered his brain, causing
0: instant death. Ooh, yikes. I've got important news from the White House. Oh. 1928. Rebecca, President Coolidge's pet raccoon, will not accompany him to the Summer White House near Brule, Wisconsin, although many other pets are going. Rebecca, it is feared, could not stand the trip. When the president returns, he is expected to find Rebecca caring for several little raccoons. Okay. Rebecca the raccoon is pregnant. Boy's
1: tongue held fast by frigid train track. I love that Mm -hmm. it kind of rhymes. Lad released by water after being prisoner. Half hour. Springfield, Missouri, February 11th of 1936. His... Tongue stuck fast to a railroad rail. Walter Davidson, 11, was held prisoner for a half hour today while a brother stood guard to flag approaching trains and his sister ran for aid. The boy, oft warned not to touch frigid metal with his tongue, attempted an experiment on the way to school. (laughs) Summoned by his sister, Otto Rupert, who lived a quarter mile away, hurried to the boy's aid with a kettle of water and released him before any trains passed by.
0: My goodness.
1: I love that it says oft warned not to do this. So like, his parents are like, look, we, we get that you're dumb. Just
0: for the love of God, don't lick any train tracks on your way to school. And what does he do? He's like, I think they told me to lick some train tracks on the way to school. you know what? That sounds like a good idea. I'm gonna do that. I gotta stick my mouth on that. I just need to know. <laughs> hey there, beloved listeners. If you're enjoying this episode, then you absolutely should check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey, which is
1: the absolute best way you can support the show and get something in return.
0: For just $5 a month, you get five bonus episodes a month.
1: On the Patreon, we frequently talk about old-timey crimes you won't hear about anywhere else. Crimes that have been forgotten by time and erased by history that you won't read about on Wikipedia, Murderpedia, or really anypedia.
0: We also delve into the old newspapers for the wacky wild crimes like the thieving lion tamer and the spaceman intruder.
1: Or talk about strange, delightful customs like Nutting Day while learning about the time people rioted
0: over cheese. (laughs) (laughs) So come, We can't even talk about it in our own promo without giggling. I love Nutting Day. (laughs) Nutting Day is the best day. So come check out the Patreon for more of the weirdest, wildest, and most shocking old-timey crime. That's patreon.com slash old-timey crimey. Where's the link? (laughs) In the show notes.
1: (laughs) I knew I was not going to get through Nutting Day without giggling. (laughs)
0: This is, um, there's some math that's not working out in this one. So it's 1886. A freak of nature, a Halifax Northwest veteran's peculiar experience. Two births in five months. Um, yeah, that's what I said. Math not working out. This math is not mathing. One of the most curious freaks of nature ever reported is now engaging the attention of Halifax medical men. At Number 165 Brunwick Street lives Wilmot Lewis, a carriage builder, and his wife. They were married March 30th, 1885. On April 11th, the husband started for the Northwest with the Halifax Provisional Battalion, he being a private in company two. When the rebellion was over, he returned with his corps. This was July 30th. On May 8th, Mrs. Lewis presented her husband with her first baby boy. Last Monday, Five months and three days after his brother was born, Mrs. Lewis gave birth to another boy. When weighed yesterday, baby t- number two tipped the beam at eight pounds. So he wasn't there for the first birth. I feel like he went away. He came back on July 30th. And on May 8th, she had the baby boy. So I think it was May 8th of the following year. Oh, the Of 1886, year. yeah. Wait, that math doesn't math. August, September, October, November. January. February. March, April, May, nine months. Could have been early too. I don't know. It can work out.
1: But can you can't. Out, but... You can't have a, a giant,
0: healthy baby in five months. Yeah. No. 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 That that part I don't get. <laughs> that part I don't. I don't understand how that happened. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. I don't. Mm,
1: okay. <laughs> Radler's poison too much for faith. Chattanooga, October first of nineteen thirteen. Reverend Haslop, a holy roller preacher near Gadsden, Alabama, is in critical condition from the bite of a rattlesnake and may not live, according to reports of his physicians. He claimed to be possessed with divine power of healing and was himself immune from harm. He proposed to prove this by allowing a rattlesnake to bite him. Two boys, taking the preacher at his word, brought him the snake Monday, he allowed it to strike him five times in the presence of a large crowd. <sighs> but yeah, so that's a, yeah, a rattlesnake can bite me. Yeah, you bring me a rattlesnake and I'll let it bite me. And two kids are like, we, we happen to have one. <laughs> we and, got you covered. And it bit him
0: five times. Oh, my. What a dude. Uh 1908, uh, we, we've had in a previous episode, Ankles Preferred. Mm-hmm. This is a case of wouldn't show ankles. Bridgeport, Connecticut. Marooned on an open drawbridge, Miss Annie Neely, a beautiful corset model of the city, was forced to remain in the middle of the Pocono- okay, River for 12 hours because she refused to take a chance on showing her dainty ankles by climbing down a ladder to a skiff, which would have brought her ashore. The bridge was opened early to allow dredging operations in the channel, and Miss Neely, who was on the structure at the time, was first warned off by the bridge tender. She did not take advantage of the warning, however, and at last the bridge tender, losing patience, opened the draw, and Miss Neely found herself marooned with a dozen men. The men protested to the bridge tender, and after much argument he procured a skiff, and, after they'd climbed down a ladder, rowed them ashore. They offered to take Miss Neely to dry land the same way, but she strenuously refused to budge, nor would she accept an offer of the bridge tender to get her lunch or carry a message to any of her relatives. During the afternoon, a snow squall came up and Miss Neely, who had spent her time watching the dredging, huddled for shelter behind the draw tender's shanty. Crowds which numbered in the hundreds watched her from each bank of the river. When the bridge was closed in the evening, she walked calmly off, apparently not in the least put out by her experience. I love that she's a corset model, but she can't show her ankles.
1: You, I, you cannot see my ankles. <laughs> I'm sorry. I will just wait here.
0: I'm not giving you a free show. You're not going to see the goods.
1: Okay. Mad Dog Panic in Cemetery. Women and Children in Sleepy Hollow. Seek Safety on Top of Tombs. Hmm. Terrytown, New York, May 31st, 1913. Thousands of persons in Sleepy Hollow Cemetery were thrown into a panic yesterday when a small black-and-white terrier ran frothing at the mouth among the graves. He was first seen near White Claw Reed Tomb, and a party nearby hastily climbed to the top of a vault. The dog continued toward the upper part of the cemetery, and women and children scattered right and left to get out of his path. The unusual holiday pilgrimage to the grave of Washington Irving was broken up. As the alarm spread, most of the people left the cemetery, and those who remained either climbed on top of tombs or stayed near shelter. Hmm. Terrier. A terrier did
0: that. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. His bark is worse than his bite. He probably did have rabies, though, so <laughs> I guess that's fair. Uh, this is mayor acquitted in murder trial. Pay attention to the ages here. Oh, wife. good. Wife, 17 years old, weeps with husband, 37, after verdict in Arkansas. The Gilbert Richardson, mayor of Batesville, was acquitted of murder by a jury in circuit court here late Saturday. The jurors deliberated three hours. As the verdict was read, Richardson's 17-year-old wife, the alleged cause of the killing for which she was tried, rushed into his arms and they wept together. The mayor and his wife left town in an automobile immediately. The trial ended exactly two weeks from the day on which Mayor Richardson killed young Farrell Paget. His defense was that Paget had tried to lure away Mrs. Richardson and had threatened to kill R- Richardson to accomplish his purpose. The shooting occurred at a dance. Paget was 23 years old. The mayor is 37. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, so I have two great headlines side by side, directly side by side. Uh, I'm not actually going to read you the articles cuz um the headlines are great but the articles are fucking lame. 99 million dollar suit against oil octopus. Oh, okay. I was like, "Oh, I love that." And right next to it, wants $50,000 for stay with lunatics. What? But these articles were lame. There was no octopus for one. There was no octopus. Why would you
0: tell me there's an octopus? And then not give me an octopus. And then not give me an octopus. That sounds like a good way to piss me off.
1: And then like the stay with lunatics is they, they put somebody away in a straitjacket for several months and it was all lies. Okay. But still, great headlines, stupid articles. Yeah. Don't tell me octopus if you're not going to give me an octopus. Because I'm imagining an octopus like ripping off an oil pipeline or something. <laughs> I'm so excited. And I'm just like, this is really fucking stupid. It's just
0: a bunch of politics. Uh, this is an ad I found, I believe, in one of the old cookbooks. But you really cannot read the old timey newspapers without coming across that most prolific of snake oils Lydia E. Pinkham's Vegetable Compound. It's everywhere. Yes. This is one of the ads for it. The headline is, Are Mothers Careless? When we hear of so many schoolgirls and girls in stores and offices who are so often unfit to perform regular duties because of some derangement peculiar to their sex, may it not be that their mothers have been careless and through neglect failed to get for these daughters the one great remedy for such troubles? Lydia E. Pinkham's vegetable compound? Nice. Derangement peculiar to their sex.
1: It happens, uh, which reminds me, listening to sermon, Woman Drops Dead. Oh. While listening to a sermon at a revival under a tent in Graves County, Miss Cynthia Al- Alcock, 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 spelled that way, aged 58 years, dropped dead Monday from heart failure. She had not complained of feeling badly, and death came without warning. She was a widow and is survived by her five sons and two daughters. Mrs. Alcock was well-known in the county. Hmm.
0: All right, this one's infuriating. Oh, good. Freedom for girls in reformatory without trial. Arrested because relatives objected to their work in movie theater. Supreme Court Justice Morshauser at Poughkeepsie will take steps today to obtain the release of Ella Beattie, who, with Margaret Ballard, also 20 years old, was railroaded from Socrates, New York, I feel like they tried to spell Socrates. because <laughs> It's S-A-U-G-E-R-T-I-E-S. Socrates. Yeah. <laughs> what happened there? Close. So they yeah. were railroaded to the State Reformatory for Women at Bedford without trial and kept there nearly five months. Judge Moore Chouser, in releasing Miss Ballard on a writ of habeas corpus, expressed amazement that such a thing as her commitment could have occurred in this country. Miss Ballard was pianist, and Miss Beattie, ticket taker ticket seller, ticket seller, in a moving picture theater in Saugerties. Their relatives did not like it, particularly Miss Ballard's, but the girls refused to give up this means of earning a living. Both have good reputations in the community. Relatives of Miss Ballard asked Chief of Police Richter to arrest her. She and Miss Beatty were charged with vagrancy, though they were supporting themselves and were summoned before William Chidester, a police justice of the town. Justice Murchauser said over the telephone today that the evidence showed both prisoners were unlawfully committed and without trial. The beady girl, he added, would soon be released. Justice Murchauser also said that the evidence pre- was presented that the Socrates officials sent to the reformatory for blank commitment papers with which to commit the two girls before they were arrested. So this was already the plan. I guess, yeah. Chief Richter testified, the justice added, that the papers were signed by the police justice in his home while the girls were at the police station a quarter of a mile away without the justice ever seeing them. Committed to a reformatory for working in a movie theater by a justice who's never seen you. And never will. Justice Chidester admitted that the girls were not brought before him for trial, but sought to excuse his mode of procedure by explaining that he had never had such a case before. He denied he was 81, saying he was only 65 years old. That's a big point of contention. Police Chief Richter inclined to blame Judge Chidester for the incident. Speaking of the case of Miss Ballard, he said, the judge is 81 years old. He felt he was acting for the girl's good and accepted her relative's suggestion that she be sent away. It is true she had no trial. The judge just made out the commitment and sent her to Bedford. I honestly have to wonder if there's any chance that these young women were lesbians. Very well could be. I mean, the, the way that they are railroaded and that their families band together to send both of them away, something about that just is a little hinky. Little bit, a little bit. King of hobos at Good Roads meeting.
1: Detroit. An event that was not on the program of the American Road Congress occurred today when the discussion was interrupted by the entrance of a man who shouted, I am the hobo king of America, and who is more interested in good roads than the hobos? I asked to be seated in this Congress as a delegate. It developed that the speaker was C. Jeff Davis, president of the International Interim Workers Union, and he was given a seat in the convention and proper credentials. Hmm. I've just come on the blind baggage from Indianapolis, explained Davis. I am Interested in good roads, as is every hobo. Don't confuse hobos with tramps who disgrace our profession. The hobo wants to work and is idle through no fault of his own. There are now 300,000 hobos in this country and we want good roads so it will be easier for us to find work. How do you count hobos? I don't know.
0: (laughs) See, Jeff Davis knows. And you, you might end up accidentally getting some tramps in there too. Don't, don't think that we're tramps.
1: There's a difference. There's a difference. I am the hobo king. The fact that they gave him a seat on the fucking Congress for running in and being like, I'm the hobo king.
0: They're like, all right, yeah, sounds legit. Put him in. I love it. I love it. <laughs> this is how government should work. Here is a story of a theft. $1,375 fur stolen. That's uh, in 1921. That would be $22,000 today. Damn. Police believe thieves fished garment from window. A mink fur coat, 36 inches long and valued at $1,375, was stolen from a window of the John Cholito Company store. Monday night, police reported Tuesday, the coat was removed through a hole in the window about six inches in diameter. Police believe thieves used a pole inserted through the opening. I love it when people are, you know, apply their ingenuity to tasks like that. It's Pretty good. Preferred
1: death to leaving America. Four men, who were to have been deported on the steamer, France, obtained liberty or death today by leaping 45 feet from an upper deck to the Hudson as the vessel lay at her pier. All trace of the men was lost. The finding of two lifebelts in the river, however, led to the belief that they had perished. The men were confined in a cabin near the hospital ward. They escaped by cutting a hole in the wall, crawling down chutes to the coal pit, climbing the emergency ladders to the upper deck. So quietly did they work that a guard stationed outside of their cabin door heard nothing of their movements. All had arrived here recently as stowaways. Oh, wow. I kind of hope they lived. I do too, yeah. They never found the bodies. And if they had life belts and jumped... They survived, ditched the belts, yeah. and swam to shore.
0: You would just ditch the belts. You're not going to, like, leave them where they can be found easily and so people can more easily, like, follow your tracks. Yeah.
1: So I hope they lived, because that was, that was pretty impressive. They dug a hole to the coal chute, went down to the coal room, took the emergency ladders up, and then jumped to freedom. Sometimes it's just deserved. <laughs> yeah, you if know what? If you really what?
0: work for your freedom.
1: I feel like they deserve it. I hope they lived and had long, happy lives.
0: Here is somebody who is spending some time in jail. Countess faces jail today for peekaboo roll. Peekaboo? Mm-hmm. A woman claiming to be a German countess was in a cell last night, awaiting sentence in court this morning on a conviction for maintaining a too hilarious establishment. <laughs> <laughs> You're too funny. Go to jail. Yeah. <laughs> and it's actually a brothel. Uh, That's the best euphemism for brothel we've come upon. Oh, I love it. A too hilarious establishment. It's too hilarious. It's beautiful. I giggle here too. (laughs) Come in and have a little giggle with us. (laughs) Oh
1: my God, that needs to be a (laughs) t-shirt. Come have a giggle with us. Come
0: have a giggle with us. Listed on the police records, the woman's name appears as Leontine Deserti. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's her real name. Well, I mean... But according to a most unwilling admission made yesterday by her counsel, she really is the Countess Perkivsky, who came to this country from Posen about ten years ago after, or so it was reported, her husband committed suicide following the loss of his fortune over the gambling tables of Monte Carlo. The terrible misfortune which has befallen this woman of culture, refinement, and sensitive nature is due to false charges and the result of a police frame-up charged her attorney She has been in such a distressing condition since her arrest that I fear the blow will kill her. After sentence is imposed tomorrow, I will hereby appeal her case immediately and am prepared to carry it to the highest courts. The countess has been held in jail since Tuesday, it was revealed. At that time, she was found guilty. A detective appeared as the chief witness against her. He is said to have testified that he obtained evidence against the countess by mounting a borrowed ladder outside her apartment at 325 Central Park West and peeking through her boudoir window. Later, the detective claimed he entered the apartment and induced her to accept money from him. Her arrest followed. So he busted her by peeking through her windows like a creep on a stolen ladder. That is, um, yeah,
1: that's something.
0: Although she does not seem on the up and up because she's got, like, two different names and she's supposedly a countess, but I don't think so.
1: Yeah. All right. So I'm going to tell you about a phantom car to be operated by radio. Ooh. This is in 1929, and it's a lady. Ooh. An automobile that requires no driver and carries no passengers will be exhibited here at noon Saturday and 3.20 o'clock. That's what it says. 3.20 o'clock in the (laughs) afternoon when Miss Gloria Hall will drive the mysterious machine through downtown streets by radio control from another car following some distance behind. The phantom car, as this mysterious machine is commonly known, starts, stops, and steers itself, blowing horns at pedestrians and turning corners at the will of the operator in the car following. No wires will connect the two machines, and no hand will touch the driverless car during the exhibition. Ms. Hall, popular movie stunt flyer, <laughs> has spent several months in training to operate the driverless machine by radio, either from a car following or from an airplane flying overhead. She has given performances in New York, Washington, Chicago, Kansas City, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Seattle, and other large cities throughout the country. Miss Hall has arranged to allow public inspection of the phantom car both before and after her exhibitions here. There is a reward of $1,000 payable to the person or persons who can find a driver concealed in the machine during the performance or any wires connected to the car following from which she will control the machine. Throughout her visit here, Miss Hall will have the phantom car on display for public inspection at various places, a complete schedule of these display points and visits will appear in this paper on Friday in the form of advertisements of the merchants who are sponsoring the local exhibition of the radio-driven machine. The cars used in Miss Hall's exhibitions have been selected from the stock of a local dealer, and the radio control mechanism will be installed on the cars in their shops. No especially constructed automobile is necessary, explained Ms. Hall in an interview yesterday. So they just take regular cars and turn them into giant remote control cars. That sounds safe. But it's a lady, and I'm (laughs) so excited.
0: I like that she's a stunt flyer. That's fantastic. She's a
1: stunt flyer, and she's the only one that can operate this giant
0: radio-controlled car. And I (laughs) thought that was really cool. That is really neat. Here I have uh, a stool pigeon accused of stealing chickens. Okay. Okay. Jack Long, alias F.A. Johnson, Johnson, <laughs> the stool pigeon in the Smithton bank robbery, is charged with stealing chickens from a farmer living near Trenton, Illinois. The dispatch states that Johnson, alias Tanner, okay, that's his third name, was arrested Sunday night north of Trenton, Illinois, with a woman giving the name of Ellen Tanner and her home Sedalia. His car slipped in the ditch and chickens were found near the car. Long, according to the dispatch, admitted the theft of the chickens and that they had thrown them from the car. You will be bound over to the grand jury at the November term of court. So I just love the, the visual of stealing chickens and then racing away. You, you lose control of the car and crash, and so you're just throwing chickens out of the car.
1: That is um, that's pretty awesome. That's pretty awesome. I don't have chickens, but I have pigs and a horse. Horse frightened to death by swine. A few days ago, when Henry Fryer of Decatersville, mail carrier from that place to Bath Springs, Decatur County, was driving along near the latter place. I love the wording of this, (laughs) by the way. It's great. A bunch of hogs jumped up and so frightened Mr. Fryer's horse that the animal fell dead in the road.
0: Pigs jump out of the woods. Horse drops dead. Okay. We're just going to go with that. Nature's fun. Co-ed bank bandit is called insane, but state fights case. Miss Marion Myers, who attempted to rob a bank here early Saturday, was adjudged insane late Monday, but her removal to a state hospital was opposed by the state's attorney. Shortly after the 19-year-old former university co-ed had been ordered held for the March Circuit Court under $1,500 bond, the Clay County Sanity Board held her insane and directed she be sent to the Yankton State Hospital for observation. The state's attorney declared he would not permit her removal from jail unless the bond had been posted. I'm going to push this case, he said. If this girl goes free, there will be 12 similar cases committed by girls just for the thrill of the thing. I believe the girls should be prosecuted the same as a man. And here's the thing. This is the story of this, uh, this bank robbery attempt. Miss Marion Myers, a 19-year-old University of South Dakota co-ed, has signed a confession in which she admits to breaking into the First National Bank in order to get $25 with which to pay her tuition at the university. She obtained nothing, having been arrested when she returned to the bank for her valise and luncheon after being frightened away. She's an attractive girl with light hair and blue eyes. So she tried to steal from the bank, failed, came back to get her lunch and her valise. And then a little while later, she had served her sentence uh, of a month and has been a model prisoner. Just A little... Weird. Yeah.
1: Okay. Death follows on pulling of tooth. Mrs. Macon Cannon Thompson, wife of Stanley Thompson, died suddenly at her home about six miles east of Shelbyville Saturday morning. She came to town Friday and had a tooth extracted and was in her usual good health when she returned home, except the gum bled quite freely. But her husband finally succeeded in checking it, and she went to sleep. The next morning, her husband awoke and found her dead beside him. The many friends and relatives were greatly shocked to hear of her sudden death. Funeral services were held Sunday afternoon at the residence. The remains were interred at Willow Mount. Sorry, I, it like cut out letters, and so I was like, what? Letter is that supposed to be because there's nothing there. But yeah, she
0: got a tooth pulled and. Wow. Died. That's quite unexpected. Yeah. I have a couple of ads for you. All right. No right to ugliness. The woman who is lovely in face, form, and temper will always have friends, but one who would be attractive must keep her health. If she is weak, sickly, and all run down, she will be nervous and irritable. If she has constipation or kidney troubles, her impure blood will cause pimples, blotches, skin eruptions, and a wretched complexion. Electric bitters is the best medicine in the world to regulate stomach, liver, and kidneys and to purify the blood. It gives strong nerves, bright eyes, smooth, velvety skin, rich complexion. It will make a good-looking, charming woman of a rundown invalid. Only 50 cents. Oh. So for 50 cents, you too, you horrifying invalid who is wretched and should be hidden from society, can have sparkling bright eyes and pure blood. Even if I did, I
1: should still probably be hidden from society. (laughs) I wasn't saying
0: you were a wretched invalid. (laughs) Even if I was. I'm cute, but whatever. (laughs) Yes, you are. Uh, But I love the somehow implication here that constipation is one of the causes of acne.
1: That was all over the newspapers. I saw the ads for that so many times that, like... If you don't take good shits, you'll have bad skin. Everything's related to your poop.
0: Yeah, apparently. I've got a couple here for Parker's Ginger Tonic. Sparkling eyes, rosy cheeks, and clear complexion only accompany good health. Parker's Ginger Tonic, better than anything, makes pure, rich blood and brings health, joyous spirits, strength, and beauty. Ladies, try it. Then there's an article, and then below it, another ad for, for... Parker's Ginger Tonic, calling it a delicious appetizer Mm. that ensures digestion and enjoyment of food, a tonic that brings strength to the weak and rest to the nervous, a harmless diarrhea cure that don't constipate, just what every family needs, Parker's Ginger Tonic. Sure. Okay. Sure. Why not? Well, yeah, we'll we'll go with that. Do you have another ad for me? No, I'm just debating if I'm going to be able to read the next one that I really wanted to read to you because it's very blurry.
1: Yeah, I have a lot. Like, this is real tiny. I'm going to be holding it right next to my face. But this is a feel-good one. And it's in Pennsylvania. Oh, okay. Entombed man still in mine. Centralia. Oh, okay. Because of a severe rainstorm, which has prevailed all day, causing falls of top into the mine where Thomas Toshesky has been entombed since last Friday morning by a fall of coal at the Continental Coilery. Extraordinary efforts were put forth tonight by the rescuers to liberate the imprisoned miner. Mine Superintendent Hefner has started a number of men digging through a 50-foot pillar of coal at the bottom of a mine branch two and a half miles up the mountain from where the breaker structure and Sorry, my eyes are, like, going cross. This is real (laughs) tiny. And late tonight, 20 feet had been dug away. Owing to the smallness of the opening, only one man at a time could dig at the foot of the heading. Tosheski, from his prison 100 feet below the surface, informed Hefner tonight through a 50-foot tubing penetrating the coal breast from an adjoining chamber that he had his mining tools with him and since his imprisonment he has dug away about three feet of the surrounding wall. A physician who accompanied the mine superintendent conversed with Tosheski and cautioned him not to take too much exercise because of his weakened condition. The doctor feared that the entombed man might contract a cold and develop pneumonia. Tosheski conversed with his would-be rescuers several times during the night, and complained of being cold. A bottle of eggnog was sent down the tube. Mm-hmm. After drinking this, the imprisoned miner said he felt more comfortable and requested the opportunity to talk with his wife, who was waiting at the edge of the mine breach. Despite the danger, Mrs. Tusheski, with the assistance of several miners, descended to the bottom of the mine and listened to the voice of her husband for the first time in nearly a week. How are the children, especially the baby, was the first question Tshesky asked. Aww. He told his wife not to worry, that the mine officials had assured him it would not be a great while until he could be with her again. Superintendent Hefner and other officials expressed doubt tonight if the entombed man could be reached before Friday. Do you know if they got him out? I did look it up. Oh. He did get out. He was trapped for eight days. Oh, my God. I'd go insane. I'd lose my mind. They figured out how to roll up things really small and get them through the tube to him. So they sent him blankets. They sent him food, water, drinks, whiskey. They sent him liquor several times, actually. (laughs) Um, But that was helping him, like, stay sane while he's trapped in a very small space in a bunch of coal Mm. they asked him not to try to dig himself out uh there was one really close call where they were almost to him and then something else like collapsed and then they couldn't get to him but he did eventually get out and he uh got to go home to his wife and see his baby and everything again so it was was
0: really cool well i'm gonna follow that up with something infuriating all right let's do it Uh, this was in 1920 out of london Jury women ask leave to cook husband's dinner. And again, this is my really blurry one, so I'm going to do my best. Women's wavering between love and duty as revealed in their service as jurors are making magistrates scratch their gray wigs. At bath quarter sessions, the first case to be tried by a mixed jury of men and women progressed splendidly until the court adjourned for lunch. The magistrate ordered the trial to be resumed at two o'clock a woman juror at once rose and protested, I cannot get home and back in time because I have to look after my husband. The magistrate gallantly extended the interval by a quarter of an hour. At another quarter session's court was startled out of its usual calm when two men arrived at 12 o'clock, interrupted the proceedings, and asked that their wives, who were serving on the jury, might be allowed to, quote, come home and cook the dinner. The women... With tears in their eyes, watched their husbands turned away, doomed to hunger as an alternative to bread and cheese, when the magistrate indignantly ordered them out of court and asked them not to make frivolous interruptions. One of the women couldn't understand the word frivolous as applied to her old man's dinner because, as she explained, he eats some at enormous. And to her mind, this dinner was a very solid fact. When women jurors for the first time sat at Walsall quarter sessions, counsel stated that the opening case was an unpleasant and indecent case which women might not like to try in company with men. The recorder said he could not graft any new principle on the law as now framed and the case was tried by the mixed jury. This puts an end to the system which has hitherto obtained of ordering women out of court whenever any case specifically especially offensive, was on the lists for hearing. Now that women are learning to fill the job so nicely, male jurymen are trying to slip out of their obligations. In one court, a daring protester, when his name was read out, replied in a loud voice, on strike. He was not called upon to serve. Meantime, the women are taking matters philosophically and placidly. A number of them bring their knitting. I love the entitlement of the two gentlemen who just stroll into the court and they're like, "No." No, she's got to come to cook my dinner. I need my my roast beef. I can't cook, so you can't have her. She's mine. I own her. Clearly, whether or not my stomach is filled is much more important than any sort of legal mumbo-jumbo you're doing here. Yes,
1: yes. Let's talk about a Joker's random shot. This is in Covington, Kentucky. Charles Cleach, 27, was charged with murder, and John Whalen and Mike Rogg face charges of accessory to murder as the result of the fatal shooting in a grocery here today of Nick Haley, 29, a huckster. Whatever that is. A huckster? A huckster.
0: Uh, That's I'm, all right. Yeah, I'm not going to say that. I don't no. <laughs>
1: Cleet told police he and Rog stopped in a restaurant and that he was seized with a desire to play a joke on customers. So grabbed a revolver from a holster, which Whalen, the waiter, carried, broke the gun to eject the cartridge, and then fired at the crowd three times. He thought the gun was empty when he fired. His story is being investigated, so he stole a gun off of a person to play a joke, and he killed somebody. Pretty great joke.
0: Yeah, hilarious. You know what? It's too hilarious.
1: Too hilarious.
0: My goodness. All right, well, this is my last one, and then I have a very special recipe. All right. Okay, so woman fights robbers to save her diamonds. Despite repeated blows from a burglar's revolver, Mrs. Moses Goldsmith successfully fought the attempt of two men Saturday afternoon to rob her of $1,000 worth of diamonds. The fight occurred in the hall of her residence on Park Avenue. Mrs. Goldsmith is the wife of a furniture dealer. When she is not wearing her diamonds, they hang in a jewel bag around her neck. The burglars seem to know that. For a week, the family had received a number of anonymous telephone calls, which they now believed to have been a ruse of the burglars to see whether or not Mr. Goldsmith was at home. The last call came on Saturday, about two o'clock. At three, Mrs. Mary Pick, who was visiting Mrs. Goldsmith, answered a knock at the front door. She found two men. "'What is it?' she asked. The first of the two stepped inside and drew a revolver. Mrs. Pick screamed. Mrs. Goldsmith ran in from the kitchen. She saw a revolver in the hands of the other man. Put up your hands, he ordered. We want those diamonds. You don't get them, replied Mrs. Goldsmith as she ran towards the door. The burglar stopped her with a club revolver. She screamed. He hit her again. If you won't give them to me, I'll get them, he said. Now stand still. He began a search of her clothing. When his hand fell on the jewel bag, Mrs. Goldsmith broke away and started again towards the door. The man followed her, hitting her again and again with a revolver. Mrs. Pick, despite the threats of the other highwaymen ran to a window, and started to throw it open. Mrs. Goldsmith's assailant made one more attempt to get the jewel bag, then turned and followed his companion in flight. Mrs. Goldsmith's head was bruised in twelve places by blows from the revolver. Tough old bra. Oh, yeah, yeah. I love that she wears her diamonds in a bag around her neck. That's fabulous.
1: That is. She's like, I'm not going to wear them right now, but I'm going to wear
0: them. I aspire to that level of fabulousness. Okay, so do you have any more for me? I do not. Okay. So the way that I got into the old recipes uh, was via the old recipes subreddit, which has some delightful content and people will try out recipes and post pictures and post pictures of, you know, from cookbooks, of recipes they found. And so I was on there the other day and somebody posted this. This is from user Rowhouse, a cookbook found on medievalcookery.com. Oh, this is going to be good. It's a 16th century cookbook by the master chef of the Prince of the Court of Transylvania. That's amazing. Yes, that m- medieval cookery people like had this translated in order to, to publish it. And it's okay. So This is a long one because it, but we're going to learn all about how to cook a whole ox. Okay. I must write about this for some do not know. If you want to cook the whole ox, use four skewers. The skewers should be sharp. You must be able to rotate it on the fire. Once the ox is skinned, don't let them hit its head. Cut its throat instead like they do with a lamb. That s- does seem, in the comments people said, it does seem like they're skinning it first and then killing it. Which is horrifying. That's that's awful, yes. Tell the butcher not to remove its horns and hooves. Make a few cuts so that he can take out its intestines, lung, and liver. Leave its kidney, but take out its bladder. Once they're in your hands, put the ox on the skewer, cover its nails and horn with a wet cloth so it doesn't get burnt. Should this cloth become dry on the fire, pour some water on it. Nail it to the skewer so the ox doesn't move around on the skewer, put nails especially in its spine, put nails in its thighs, some in its back, and nail its legs so that it looks like it's laying on the table. Once it's on the skewer, add some salt on the outside and on the inside as well. Boil the ox's fat and boil a pot of salted water, pour the water on the ox until the fat's Not ready? That seems wrong. You must roast it for long, about three to four hours, for it has to be roasted nicely. That also sounds wrong. Once it's done and you start to serve it, make a table from boards and put the ox on top. Put white bread on the table, two barrels of wine, and pots made of wood, and bring several spigots so that they can pour wine from the barrels even if one spigot breaks. Backup plans. I like that. If you wish to decorate it, gild its horns and and hooves and put the crest of your lord between its horns. This is good for weddings. And then he continues in this separate paragraph. I shall write some more about cooking that ox. Which is just a fabulous, fabulous sentence. These are things I heard from my old masters. There were 40 or 50 masters at a lord's wedding. And once they were done with cooking, they sat down and started talking the trade. Then they started to talk about the ox. Master Mihali, the great Georgi Bebek's chef, said, I saw Gabor Prini's wedding, and Master Antal cooked an ox, which had a big sheep inside, which had a calf inside, and the calf had a big capon inside, so a rooster. Once it was done, he took out the capon, and if the capon was cooked, then so was the ox. Some chefs said that it is impossible some spice masters said it is possible, since the ox is big and requires a great deal of time to be cooked properly. The animals inside would cook, since the ox would act like a furnace, trapping all the heat inside. They go into detail about how to do this, and then... That is the most horrifying traducan I've ever heard of. <laughs> right? And then he finishes off with, I told you this because making roast beef requires knowledge. Then imagine what kind of knowledge making an ox requires. Should my lord ask for this, I would do it.
1: An ox stuffed with a sheep, stuffed with a calf, stuffed with a fucking rooster. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> I shall write some more about cooking that ox. <laughs> Which, for some reason, reminds me of of Joel and how he'll just approach people and I say, can I pet that dog? <laughs> can I pet that dog? <laughs> Petting
1: the dog is much better than stuffing the ox with other barnyard animals. Because... Um, Oh my, like, I'm just trying to think of the sheer size of this. Like, you need to have a lot of people invited to this party because that animal would be larger than the studio we are currently recording in.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, this is another thing that was pointed out in the comments. The size of animals has changed over the years. So the ox could feasibly be smaller than than we would think of it now but not, it's still not small by any means. It's not if a small animal. You're
1: still stuffing it with a sheep and a calf and a rooster. Even if it was like slightly smaller, it's still going, it's still to, going be to be a big. giant yeah. balloon of an ox by the time you're done. Well, this is why he's the chef for the, the Prince of Transylvania. It's so
0: scary. I don't like it. That's that's too much. So the Prince of Transylvania is having his ox for dinner at, the, at a wedding with uh, the, the horn and hooves gilded and extra spigots for the wine just in case. Okay, yeah. <laughs> so that was a very special recipe. I felt we don't that normally get very, stuff like that. That was very very special.
1: <laughs> but I'm actually I'm really glad you said the extra spigot was for the wine in case one one broke. Because in my head I pictured them just sticking one in the ox to like drain <laughs> the blood. I mean we're talking Transylvania. True. True. So I just like pictured like an ox with two spigots and be like, mm, my glass of blood. <laughs> like please don't tell me
0: that's what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm happy to tell you it's not.
1: Yeah, but now I, I gave you that mental image because it's locked in my head. Thank you for that.
0: You're welcome. I always appreciate uh, your friendship and horrifying mental images of Transylvanians drinking ox blood. There's so
1: much wrong in my brain, and sometimes I feel like I need to share it with the world so that they know that I might be a sociopath.
0: That's why we have a podcast.
1: Yeah. That's the whole purpose of
0: podcasts. Okay, fair. It's to share your sociopathy with the world. Hooray! Yay! <laughs> All right, thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this trip through the old-timey newspapers and also 16th century Transylvanian ox cooking. (laughs) Yum. I'm going to have
1: the weirdest dreams (laughs) tonight. No
0: kidding. Somehow a dream where you're stuffing, like, your husband into the ox or something. I don't know how I got there, but it's. uh, I, I also have weird things going in my head sometimes. And when Amber shakes her head at you and gives you that look, she's staring off into the distance like... Picturing it, I think. You don't want to know. Okay, all right. <laughs> and uh, anyhow, so uh, thank you for listening. Uh, there's all kinds of ways you can support us in the uh, show notes, and that includes our Patreon, where you can come and hear us talk about what uh, we somehow did uh, back-to-back without even colluding with each other on this. We both had stories about sex workers. It was, it yes. was weird, but they were on opposite sides of the uh, case in, in each instance. So, So, yeah. And in mine, of course, uh, the sex worker was murdered because God willed it.
1: Because God willed it. Yeah. Yeah. Amber didn't like that very much. No. No. -hmm. If you want to hear me get mad, listen to Christy's Tiny.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I think her rage was palpable. So, yeah. That's patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And you can get five bonus episodes a month for five bucks a month. Quite a deal. Can't beat it. You can beat it as much as you want. (laughs) That is Amber approved. So, all right. And uh, we'll see you next week. And uh, bye. Bye.